We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This is the second part of a two part episode. To hear part one, listen to last week's episode and then come back for this one. And then the second book, I actually started working on the second book before Occupy, uh, Occupy Spirituality, and that was a book about new monasticism. Rory McEntee and I spent probably five or six years being in conversation almost every day, kind of trying to articulate and name some of the things that we felt were happening in our lives, but also in the lives of our friends. And that conversation was specifically inspired by the whole school of spirituality that emerged out of Raymond Panikar, uh, Father Beat Griffiths, uh, Brother Wayne Teasdale, and others. And it was a book about new monasticism, but we wanted to kind of capture the more contemplative dimension of new monasticism. So we were grateful for what our evangelical friends did, people like Sean Claiborne and others, but we felt that we wanted to represent a more contemplative dimension of new monasticism um, and also a new monasticism that would address the question of interspirituality. Uh, something that was named by Brother Wayne Teasdale, but a lot of it actually comes out of that Indian uh, Christian ashram tradition, uh, both in the Anglican and Catholic uh, traditions in India. Uh, and for us, it was important to essentially acknowledge that there are lots of kids, lots of young people who don't feel connected to a tradition. Kids who are exploring things like mindfulness, things like meditation, things like yoga, kids who have these amazing awakening experiences. Uh, but then our question was, that's great, but what is step number two? What's the next step? How are we gonna connect to that and translate something that we have in a Christian tradition, which is this beautiful framework for spiritual formation and essentially offer it to kids, not hoping that they will become Christians but in a way that is very generous and open-minded where we simply offer it to them and that could be part of the conversation that they are having amongst themselves. Um, so, you know, when you look at that book, it has a lot of stuff from Raymond Panikor, it has a lot of stuff from Father Breed Griffiths, from Father Thomas Keating, uh, from Merton and others, from Beverly Lanzetta. And the goal there was to really kind of try to articulate the next step for all of the young people who are engaging with spirituality, because our fear was that, and, and I've seen that, especially as I traveled in the last decade kind of in Europe and, and here teaching, uh, you know, and leading spirituality workshops and retreats for young people, I discovered that lots of people connect with spirituality, but then because that happens outside of the tradition, um, the theology that they embrace oftentimes feels a bit questionable. And I think that in a way it goes back to what happened uh, in the West. In the, in the 60s, we had all these teachers from the East coming here 
Uh, and when you read some of the transcripts of their speeches and interviews with them, most of them said that they are not here to teach Hinduism. Um, you know, all those gurus who are coming here, they are simply offering people a methodology for experiencing God. Uh, and some of them said, so Christians could become better Christians, so Jews can become better Jews, and et cetera. Now, whether that was completely true or not, I don't know, but that is certainly what is on the record. And I think the church didn't really know what to do with that. And so you had people like Merton and, and Thomas Keating and others who engaged with that. And as a result, we have things like Centering Prayer or John Nain's uh, Christian Meditation, you know, meditation that he actually, a method that he learned from a Hindu Swami in, I think, Sri Lanka. Uh, but the mainstream church didn't know how to engage with that uh, and often met those, uh, you know, passionate young people who were engaging in Zen meditation and, and yoga and etc. with in a very kind of critical and, and, and negative way. And so I think as a result, what happened, there was a vacuum. A lot of those guys from the East were teaching methodo methodology of contemplative prayer, but weren't really giving us any theology. Uh, the church wasn't really able to show up with the good incarnational theology that we have. And so as a result, now we have a mixture, what I would call American spirituality. And I mean, maybe this is a very kind of negative assessment, but we have a mixture of Eastern methods of meditation with a lot of um, positive psychology um, as a theological framework. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that you know, might be good at the beginning, but overall, I don't think that that enables the kind of transformation that, that our tradition uh, promises to us. So it was very important for us in that second book to name certain things, to engage with the Carmelite mystics, um, uh, you know, to, to talk about uh, a spiritual journey in a very specific way, and also to incorporate some of the newer things like psychology, you know, and, and the need for therapy, the, the, the need for uh, engaging with, with, with the world of, of, of social injustice and etc. So those are the two books. Um, you know, that, that kind of emerged really feels a bit by accident in my life. Well, Teresa wrote all her books under obedience. So sometimes, <laughs> you know, people yeah. who don't consider themselves to be authors still have something to say. And I really, really appreciate your assessment of kind of the, the spiritual moment that we find ourselves in. And I, I, I'm with you every step of the way. Adam, I'd like to go back to your journey with um, with young people on the streets and and bring it back to our topic of silence here on this podcast. And so I'm really curious how you experienced silence on the streets, how you found silence in the lives of the people that you were befriending and ministering to on the streets. Could you speak to that a little? Yeah, so uh, when I was in India and when I just started uh, working with young people, uh, uh, we did something that, uh, that we adopted from Roshi Bernie Glassman. We did street retreats, uh, very short ones, which meant that once a week we slept on the street to become, to bear witness to what was happening. And what I discovered through that is that, first of all, I was not really able to show up properly unless I had my contemplative prayer going on daily basis. And then second of all, 
being there on the street, one of the first experiences of silence that I had was, you know, waking up in the middle of the night because it feels like someone just like urinated in you or something like that, you know, on the street in Delhi um, and just sitting there and watching the whole city that is normally very wild, slowly falling asleep and just sitting there in stillness, really kind of paying attention and, 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 and trying to listen to the voice of God present in all of that. So that was really my first experience of silence. And after that, you know, when I came back to the States, I was very much aware that I needed to have a very strong contemplative practice of silence in order to even be able to show up and be present on the streets. I think in terms of the silence of young people once in their own lives, once we started the Reciprocity Foundation, what we discovered was that uh, homeless kids were not interested in talking about spirituality, but they were very eager to experience what would feel like a break from all the chaos that, that was present in their lives. So very soon after opening our first center in New York City, um, we developed this idea that when you walk into our center, everything matters. So you enter our center and there's a specific smell of incense. There's a gentle music playing. You're met by someone who is willing to ask you some really important questions. And then you're offered a chair massage or ear acupuncture and, 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 and given some, some, some basic instructions in how to kind of fully bring yourself into the space. And then we would guide them into silence. And what we discovered is that a lot of the healings that they experienced as a result of their engagement with our program happened through that silence. Um, and, 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 you know, the results were just extraordinary. I remember um, the, one volunteer once, once said to me that, you know, he knew some of the kids from other organizations where he was also volunteering. And he said he was never aware until he came to our center that he was able to have these amazing conversations with these kids because the whole space felt like a container um, that was essentially cultivated by silence. And that felt very important. And, and you know, we had these crazy things because our, our space for meditation was always open. So we would have kids knock on our doors and, and say, you know, I, I almost got into a fight with my roommate in the shelter. Uh, I knew that if I do that, I'll be kicked out and I can't go back you know, on the street. So instead, I came here and I need to spend time in the meditation room and just be silent. Uh, that to me was amazing. Or one time I remember this, this one trans kid who, who, who started coming every day and learned meditation. Um, he simply said, you know, every time I show up here, I feel like I need to go into the meditation room. Once I, I go there, once I sit and get quiet, I feel like I just need to tell God about all of the pain in my life and then just rest there and be silent. And so my response to that was, why don't you just do that every day, you know? Um, so I think that silence has been 
extremely important both in my own development but also in the lives of those that I that I worked with and you know eventually we started taking kids into monasteries I remember one time we took a bunch of homeless youth to a Zen monastery upstate New York and that was really wild at first because you know they brought all of their gadgets their you know their big stereos and their music and you know eating a vegetarian diet for a day. They were freaking out a little bit. And then after two days, something happened. And you could see their faces were just like, I don't know, like changed, you know, as a result. And, and, and you know, like the, the Buddhist nuns couldn't believe it because our kids, you know, are the kinds of kids that you know, they would be like 45 minutes late for an hour long meditation you know, because they've never had any structure in their lives. But then when they started talking about the experience that they had in silence, the, the nuns just couldn't believe it, that that, that that was their experience, because it was this experience of, of merging with something that, that, that was more than just their minds, you know. So Adam, on the podcast, oftentimes we talk about toxic silence and the many ways in which people are silenced uh, all over the world and the way that that oppression can create different views of silence and different feelings towards silence. And I wonder a couple of things. I wonder if you've experienced um, any kind of toxic silencing in your own life. And I also wonder just how you... I'm sure you've encountered many children in those situations that find silence to be um, a harmful thing instead of a helpful thing. And I wonder how you kind of um, walk someone to um, the place of where silence can be beautiful and can be good and can be important. Yes, I mean, I, I, I think that in some ways uh, during the first phase of my life, uh, when I started engaging with silence, first of all, because we were living in a totalitarian system, uh, the boundaries of what could be named or acknowledged were, were very clear. Right. And some things you could just never openly acknowledge. And so as a result, I think that the program that I embraced was that some things you just never acknowledge. And so when I started showing up for silence and contemplative prayer, I was only including some elements of who I am. And all of the other stuff was just pushed under. Uh, and that was very harmful, uh, you know, and it took a long time to, to re-engage with some of those parts of myself that needed to be reawakened, welcomed um, back into my life. And, and, and part of that, I would imagine, was because of just this, this embedded toxic silence that you were just yeah. so used to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, it, it was like, in a way, the framework for how you lived your life was deeply rooted in what is allowed and what is not allowed. Mm -hmm. And whenever you ventured into the world of non-allowed, I mean, there are consequences. Mm. And the consequences sometimes are very brutal. I mean, you know. And so I think that, and then of course, when I started engaging with, with, with homeless youth, 
many of them carried deep secrets of abuse, of heartbreak. And even if they tried to speak about those things, they often felt like they were punished for that. And so I think that in all of this, you know, the framework that I kind of developed for how I engage with contemplative prayer and how I teach contemplative prayer is that silence is a natural byproduct of the, of the first phase of, 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 of prayer. And the first phase is really about, um, to, 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 use, to use a phrase uh, that comes from a friend of mine who's a, who's a Sufi singer, Bisan Turan, she, she has this phrase, um, gathering the marginalized parts of our hearts. And so for me, contemplative prayer needs to start with that, where we name what is alive in us, where we bring all of that in, where we allow all of those things to be in a conversation with each other, right? So the crowd of inner voices, of inner experiences could become, could be transformed into a community. And then we simply present that to God. But before that, we give voice to all of that. And then we transition into silence, but a silence that is not just a technique or a negative or toxic silence, is a silence that, that is a natural byproduct of having given voice to whatever needed to be expressed in us. So for me, I think that is very important. That's beautiful. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath with us and join us for this 30 seconds of silence. And, you know, a lot of it for me was I discovered that not so much in a monastery, but by working with a, uh, uh, with a very skilled psychotherapist uh, who was also a Zen teacher and a Zen monk. Uh, mm -hmm. And I feel that the methodology there was to simply dig in and see what is alive in me. Yeah. And give it voice and invite it into... The you know, so all of those parts of me could literally be in a conversation be with each other because before that I had some kind of an idealized spiritual self, mm -hmm. uh, the person with the mic, and everyone else was, you know, pushed under. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when I invited all of those components of myself, and when all of them were invited to be in a conversation with each other, I discovered that things that would normally kind of hinder me and, and be problematic, once they're integrated into a whole, those things become sources of, of, of encouragement, inspiration, and even empowerment. Mm -hmm. But only once they're acknowledged, welcomed in, and listened to. Amen. Mm. And it's amazing how silencing different parts of ourselves 
per our situation, per our society, can also get embedded and enmeshed and confused with our theology. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and speaking as a, a queer woman, um, it's amazing to see how, you know, those things were, that self-hatred was woven together with a variety mm-hmm. of things. Um, but yeah, that integration of the full self is takes work and takes um, a deep listening to ourselves and to heed um, the truth of the truth of God and of love. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing absolutely. that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. So Adam, do you have a silence hero? Uh, and we usually ask that question of, of our guests and we mean that as broadly as possible. It could be somebody in your life that either represents silence for you uh, someone who brought it to you. It could be a famous person, you know, it could be a saint, it could be a writer, you know, or it could be a person that you met on the street, you know, but uh, is there somebody who encapsulates for you silence and, and you hold as like a hero and and you think of them when you think of silence? Yeah, I I, I, I have few of those, but, but one that I... Uh, someone who has been very influential in my life. I mean, it's a historical figure, a saint, uh, Sister Teresa Benedicta of the Cross. For a very long time, I've just felt really connected to her. And it's not even so much, you know, her writings, but the life that she lived. Um, And she always felt like an older sister of sorts. Um, Mm. And so uh, I'm, her, her life just really reminds me about what it's all about and what silence should be about. And also, you know, the question of justice mm-hmm. and, and the need sometimes to, 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 to speak um, and, 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 and also the need for our words to be born out of that silence. Mm. Adam, I'm really interested in hearing about kind of your latest assignment or your latest initiative. Uh, you're newly appointed there to the Cathedral of the Incarnation, and you're starting a new center. And remind me of the name, the Center for Spiritual It's the Center for Spiritual Imagination. The goal for this center is to essentially infuse the church and our diocese, but also the world, uh, with a new way of, 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 of being with God and the people. As we think about uh, our mission, uh, it is very important for us to essentially formalize as a community to have a rule of life and to spend quite a bit of time in prayer to listen to that uh, unfolding of God in the depths of our hearts and then to make sure that whatever we create here is emerging out of that. You know, Meister Eckhart talked about this uh, this uh, this this idea that what what good is it that Mary gave birth to um, uh, to Christ you know fourteen hundred years ago now we would say two thousand years ago if you and I can't give birth uh, to God today um, and so that is the goal for us uh, to essentially be a center that is really uh, a birthing place uh, a birthing place for ideas for action for programs that emerge out of silence and that articulate a new way of, 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 of being church. Not so much through our ideas, but through our witness and through our prayer and through, uh, through what emerges here. So our goal here is not to develop, 
you know, some amazing ideas for the church. I feel like the church has a lot of ideas and most of them it's very difficult to, to implement. Uh, for us, it's very important to, to be a space, to be a field where we can invite people uh, so they too could, could experience what's happening here. And why imagination? Because I think that, uh, you know, again, it's this, it's this question of birthing. I think that uh, creativity, imagination, you know, the, the way that I think about these things is this, I think that contemplative prayer uh, for me is very much about heartbreak and aliveness. You know, I, I, I gather all of the stuff of my life, all of the stuff that I experience in this world uh, both my heartbreaks, but also all of those things that make me truly alive. And I bring them to God and I sit there in silence, awaiting God's response. And if I faithfully can do that, I feel that what happens is that there is some kind of a breakthrough. The operating system, which, which I had before, before engaging in this, breaks for a moment. And then there is that impulse of God that arises. Uh, and to me, that's where all the dreams come from. Um, you know, that's where imagination comes from. That's where creativity comes from. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And our vocation as the church and as people is really about us being able to gather all of our staff and sit there in silence and wait, and then be able to receive that impulse of God and consent to it so we could become an expression of that in the world. And you know, then there is the final stage of that, uh, which is a stage of that is sort of a test. That impulse that just came into our life, that gathered all of our gifts and talents and heartbreaks and reassembled them into something that we're offering to the world. The last question is, are we doing that in service of compassion and justice and beauty, or are we doing that for self-preservation or some of the other things? And I think if the answer is we're doing this in service of compassion and justice and beauty, then for me, this is what, what the Christian path is about, which is essentially, you know, St. Augustine said that a Christian is someone through whom Christ um, loves, through whom Christ speaks, through whom Christ lives. Uh, so, so for me, all of this is letting God live through us as much as possible. Mm. And so this center is essentially, we hope that this center will essentially be a space in which that kind of work can happen. Adam, we often realize that um, the people we speak with love poetry, like poetry, and um, usually have something on their mind that they might like to share with us. And so I wonder if you have a poem that you might uh, want to share with us and our guests. I do. It's a, okay. it's a okay. poem and a prayer that I used to work with a lot in, in the, especially when I was leading retreats uh, for, for young people uh, around. Uh, oh, that's great. That's perfect. People discovering their calling. It's a poem that was written by a German theologian, Dorothy Solle. So I've always, you know, like I, I haven't engaged with it for, for years, but I used to end some of my retreats with it. And uh, one time in Switzerland, uh, I led a, 
Um, I co-led a retreat about radical aliveness for changing the world, I think uh, it was called, and it was based on that famous Howard Thurman quote um, about aliveness. Don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you truly alive, because what the world needs is people who have become alive. Mm. Um, and something really beautiful happened because we worked with this poem and at the end, all the young people created this beautiful piece of music where, um, you know, called Dream Me God, that had some of the words from this poem, but also where every one of them would kind of chant their vocation into being, wow. uh, so to speak, naming it. It was quite beautiful and very moving. So here's the poem, Dream Me God, it's not you who should solve my problems, God but I yours, God of the asylum seekers. It's not you who should feed the hungry, but I who should protect your children from the terror of the banks and armies. It's not you who should make room for the refugees, but I who should receive you, hardly hidden God of the desolate. You dreamed me, God, practicing walking upright and learning to kneel down more beautiful than I am now, happier than I dare to be, freer than our country allows. Don't stop dreaming me, God. I don't want to stop remembering that I am your tree planted by the streams of living water. Don't stop dreaming me, God, because I don't want to stop remembering that I am your tree planted by the streams of living water. Ah, oh, so awesome. I love her. Yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful. This has really been a wonderful conversation. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, this this has been really wonderful for me. We are encountering silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at EncounteringSilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. <laughs>